Today's show is sponsored by Harry's Shaving Products for Men. The shaving cold war has made drugstore razors insanely prohibitively expensive. At just $15, Harry's Truman Starter Set is an unbelievably good deal. You'll get a razor handle, moisturizing shave cream, and three of Harry's five-blade German-engineered razors. And for Think Again listeners, it gets even better. Harry's will give you $5 off with the promo code THINK. So that is only $10 for the Truman Set. Go to harrys.com. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. Takes literally 30 seconds to check out and make sure to use promo code THINK to get your $5 discount. This episode is also sponsored by GoToWebinar. It lets you connect and interact seamlessly with your target audience and it doesn't suddenly freeze up or drop them or do anything else embarrassing. It just works. So your potential customers can focus on what you're saying and what you can offer them and not on troubleshooting their internet connection. Visit gotowebinar.com to start your free 30-day trial. Again, that is gotowebinar.com. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Since 2008, Big Think has been sharing big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers around. On the Think Again podcast, we leave our comfort zone, surprising our guests and me, your host, with unexpected conversation starters from Big Think's interview archives, ideas we didn't come here prepared to discuss. Today I'm very excited to be joined by musician and National Book Award winning author James McBride. He wrote The Color of Water, The Good Lord Bird, co-wrote two screenplays with Spike Lee, and wrote a powerful new book called Kill Him and Leave about the life and legacy of the godfather of soul himself, James Brown, whose gift of around $100 million to impoverished kids for their education has been tied up and eaten up in legal battles for about a decade since his death. Welcome to Think Again, James. Thank you, thank you. Delighted to be here. Wanted to ask you a little bit about the process of writing the book, trying to figure out who James Brown was. How did that go for you? Like, where did you start, and, and how did you get where you ended up? Well, it started when I got a call from someone who said they had the James Brown story, quote unquote. I followed it up. Turned out that he had a, a grandson and a son who wanted you know, the real story to come out and his first wife as well. At first I turned it down and then I reconsidered and I took it on. And right. then it turned out to be a lot bigger and harder than I thought. Because? I mean, James Brown is, is huge. He's like a noun, you know. <laughs> Car, house, James Brown, toothpaste, sneakers. I mean, he's, you know, he's a, just a giant. And so his story has been written about in several books, but you know, knowing him turned out to be difficult because he didn't want to be known. He compartmentalized everything. Everything in his life was in a different department. You know, band, producer, wives, white friends, black friends, manager. He had a lot of different, and none of them knew the other that well. He kept everyone away from the center. He was the epicenter of everything. Would control freak be a uh, <laughs> too broad uh, of a term to apply? No, I, I think he's more of a person who had a lot of fear. Uh-huh. And he was a Southerner, so he lived in a world where Southerners are taught to stay in their own lane. Everyone knows their place. Right. And because he veered out of his lane from time to time, he got into all kinds of trouble and problems. Yeah, it seemed like one of the things, I mean, definitely one of the things that you were explicitly trying to do in the book was to counteract and problematize some of the images of James Brown that have been presented to the public, like the way he's been 
caricatured or misunderstood. Oh yeah, I mean, first of all, he was a man of great musical ability. There's no question about that, and he was a great dancer. But what what was not really conceded is that <clears throat> the fear that ruled his life, the fear of the American government, the fear of racism, the fear of white society, and the paranoia. Some of the stuff you describe later on about like him getting believing he was getting signals from yeah, the government. Yeah, he believed the government was listening, like listening through his fillings. Yeah, schizophrenic, really. I mean, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure that he was schizophrenic, but I think <laughs> toward the end of his life, he was so lonely and he had so few people that he trusted that his fear about the government taking everything he had was overwhelming at times. You're talking about a guy who. When he was young, his family, he, he, came up, he grew up in a family of sharecroppers. Right. And his family, the whole town that they lived in and six other towns were, were basically moved, obliterated by the, by the federal government when they built a gigantic nuclear bomb making plant called the Savannah right. River Nuclear Site. They displaced 8,000 people, 1,700 homes, 1,700 graves, churches, businesses, sawmills, everything. They were all moved so that 310 square miles of land in South Carolina could be made into a giant, gigantic bomb factory. That was James Brown's true origins because he, he came from an extended family of sharecroppers. I mean, he had lots of cousins and all of them were scattered to the winds when that giant nuclear bomb making plant was made. Mm -hmm. And then he was sent to Augusta, Georgia where he lived with a great aunt and then he went to jail for stealing car parts. And when he came out of jail, that's when his, at 19, when he came out of jail after serving three, three years and a day in, in a boys' reformatory, that's when he began his career as a singer. You paint a picture of a guy who is extraordinarily talented, as you say, and as everybody knows, but extremely complex. Like, basically, what I like about the book is that you show a man who is multiple people. Well, I mean, if you want to know who someone is, you have to ask a lot of people about him. I mean, you know, you ask a guy's ex-wife or who he is, and she'll say he's a rascal, he's a scoundrel, he's a dog, and he's a cheapskate. <laughs> you ask his current wife, she'll say he's the greatest husband in the world, and, you know, I hope we live together until we die. I mean, yeah. but he represented so much to African Americans. I mean, he right. was, you know, twice during the course of his life. When Martin Luther King was, was assassinated, he was called to two different cities, Boston and Washington, to quell basically urban riots, you know, because people trusted him. Yeah. He was seen as a man, he had the big hit, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, and, but I think behind the looking glass, he was so complicated because he, he didn't trust anyone. James Brown was bas basically self-managed after his first manager died. His thing with violence against women, you know, he had some very loyal, very long-term relationships with women who spoke highly of him to you, and there are other, you know, there's a history there also. I felt like as a writer of this book, you know, trying to complicate his story or show the true picture, you were also, maybe there was a pressure to defend him against some of these impressions that people might have. Well, I think you make a legitimate point. I, I didn't soft pedal his treatment of women, but you I didn't. talk about it. Yeah. I, I talk about it, but I don't go into it in detail, in part because that's been done before. Uh -huh. What I wrote in this book, this book is not really a biography, this book is a view of him right. and how it, it pings off the American vision and the American soul. I have no objection to writing about men who abuse women. I'm, no, I'm not an apologist for that kind of behavior, certainly. Sure. The thing is that during his time, the abuse of women was, it was so rampant that 
few people in the music press really paid that much attention to it. So, so when it's they, like a when historical it, reality or something. Well, or yeah, something. but I mean, when it did hit the press, it was so hot, people ran with it, and that was just another reason why he was a kook and a, and a mess. Mm -hmm. But he was certainly not the first black star to abuse women. Let's face it, I mean, in, in I, I black Turner. American life, you know, <laughs> that is a huge issue. Will Chamberlain, the great basketball player, once said that everybody hates Goliath. And I think James Brown fell into that category. That said, there's no excusing his, his treatment of women and to some degree the treatment of his musicians and his band. You know, he was of that age where he felt he should buy women, you know, he should make women into the women that he wanted them to be, you know, with the fur coats and right. the, you plastic, know, the, the surgery. plastic surgery. His third wife died with having lip, liposuction. And, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. the, <laughs> this kind of behavior and this kind of abuse between people is beyond the scope of the imagination for us in this time. But during that time in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, I won't say it was normal, but it was, it was more rampant and not talked about n nearly as much as, as it is now. Sure. My, um, my dad apparently sat next to James Brown on an airplane once in the 80s. Um, really? And James was super friendly and invited him and our whole family out to his like ranch, which never materialized, alas. That would have been well, he cool. was a friendly guy, I mean, but then so was Charles Manson, I mean, I, I, you know, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, Southerners are friendly people. So on, on that note, I think, let's get to the second part of the show, yeah? This is right. where we watch the surprise videos. All right. I do not know what they are. You do not know what they are. It seems that this first one is Charles Duhigg on the science of productive teams. All right, let's see what we got and react how we react. Before we get to the surprise clip though, I wanna take a minute and tell you about our sponsor, Harry's. Harry's is a men's shaving company that will mail you high quality German engineered razors and shaving products at a much, much lower price than those price gouging drugstore razors that are threatening to bankrupt you. I've tried them. The whole experience of using Harry's razors from unboxing to rinsing, makes you feel like a late Roman emperor without all the nasty bits. Try the Truman Starter Set. It's an unbelievable deal for just $15. You get a razor handle, moisturizing shave cream, and three of Harry's five blade razors. And for Think Again listeners, there's an even sweeter deal. Harry's will give you $5 off with the promo code THINK. Go to harrys.com. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. It takes literally 30 seconds to check out and make sure to use the promo code THINK to get your $5 discount. And now, let's get back to our surprise clip and the rest of the conversation. About five years ago, Google started this interesting experiment. They wanted to figure out how to build the perfect team. And so what they did is they started collecting huge amounts of data about all the teams within Google. The teams that at a glance look most productive oftentimes aren't. But if you can create this conversational turn-taking, equality of voices, if you can convince people to really listen to each other by being sensitive to the nonverbal cues we're giving off, then you create psychological safety. And psychological safety is the single greatest determinant in whether a team comes together or whether it falls apart. One of my favorite examples of psychological safety and a team really come to, coming together is the early days of Saturday Night Live. So when you think about it, um, Saturday Night Live never should have worked, 
right? You have a bunch of comedians who are kind of misanthropes to begin with. And yet, for some reason, when Lorne Michaels put them in a room together, everyone was willing to kind of get along. They, they were willing to put aside their ego and create this amazing show together. Not only an amazing show, but a show that was put together under these incredible time pressures, right? They have a week to put together a live show. And when I talked to the early writers and performers on Saturday Night Live and I asked them why this happened, all of them said the same thing, because of Lorne Michaels. So Lorne Michaels has this very unique way of running meetings. He sits down and the meeting starts and what he'll do is he'll make everyone go around the table and say something. And if someone hasn't spoken up in a little while, Lauren Michaels will actually stop the meeting and he'll say, Susie, I noticed that you haven't chimed in. Like, what are you thinking about right now? And it all works out. But it's because he creates an environment that feels safe, where everyone feels like they can speak up and they feel like everyone else is genuinely listening to them because they're sensitive to all the cues that they're sending. I think that kind of analysis is a dream killer for me because I, I think hmm. when you analyze stuff too much, the next thing you know, it's like, you know, analyzing sex. I mean, you know, <laughs> should, we, should we write a report when we're done? Or, you know, we should checklist, of, you know, true, false, one to five, how, did you, how was it? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that kind of thinking is dangerous for the creative process. Like if you come in with that method and no, try to I, no, like, I mean whatever like, method. Try to follow. No, no, yeah, yeah I wouldn't. I mean, look, I wouldn't follow. What's his name? Lauren, Lauren, Lauren Michaels. Lauren Michaels. Yeah. I wouldn't follow his method. I'd follow my method. Everybody right. has a different solo. Everybody has a different way of singing their song. I think the collaborative process, which is really what the journalist is talking about, is dictated by what you need to create and who's in the room. And so that process works for that particular group of people, given the time constraints that exist. Mm -hmm. I don't know that that would work if you were writing for a six-part miniseries. Like I did a, I was one of the writers in a six-part miniseries for David Simon, the creator of The Wire and oh, so yeah? forth. It hasn't aired yet, it's called Parting the Waters. It's oh, about cool. Taylor Branch's three-book series about the civil rights movement. I'll be watching Myself, that. Myself, ta Coates, Taylor Branch, David Simon. Okay, Omar. okay, now we're going there. What was it like being in a, a writing room with David Simon, ta and like, how did that Eric go? Did, well, it was great. I mean, how uh, did that work? Like, it was free. I mean, David didn't point at you and say, what are you thinking? You know, he did it a different way. He said, uh, you know, we have to decide which story we're going to tell and who's going to tell it. He's like Count Basie, you know. I mean, he's like Duke Ellington, really. Duke Ellington had a band of great soloists. Okay. And he'd say, this is the composition. Now put your thing to it. David is the same way, you know, he says, this, these are the parameters, you're, you're all small little kings in your kingdom, <laughs> let's bring our kingdoms together and see which one of us can come up with the best idea. Whoever has the best idea, we'll run with that. So you can't bring a lot of ego into a room like that. You have to be, you're there to service the story. Gotcha. And a good writer will service the story. A good musician will service the music. As a novelist, how do you work? Do you plot? out everything before you write or do you just uh, no I don't I, I have no standard way of doing it other than getting up at four o'clock in the morning and, and getting to work you can no, you can know. you can write at four o'clock in the morning okay well I, I you know I go to bed at nine all right know? if I go to bed at 11 I get up at four o'clock anyway and then I take a nap <laughs> at, at 11 a.m. until you know I mean the discipline of music taught me how the, the necessity of practice but going back to your earlier statement about this room full of writers if you're a real serious writer, you, you are a servant to the story. You, writing chooses you, you don't choose it. So when you're working with other writers, 
you have to service the idea, and that's really where the craft comes in, the trade. Sure. Shows us up because then you have to be able to throw left-handed and bat right-handed or bat right-handed and throw left-handed. Right. You have to be able to you have to be able to hit a curveball in the bottom of the seven with two out and guy on base. You just have to be able to do it because if you don't, you're bringing the whole team down. So mm -hmm. you have to learn how to play every position. You're a person who's collab. You've done music, so you've collaborated with other people. You've done theater. Tanahasi has written a comic book just now. Uh, you know, so there's a just I think of like some of these folks, you know, William Faulkner, you know, the folks like sitting alone in their room for their whole lives would probably freak out if they suddenly had to share the table. Probably, well, maybe. Maybe, I don't know. I mean, uh, <laughs> I, but I must say that writing is a lonely life. And so working with other writers in this particular situation was just a lot of fun. And my problem is that at my age, you know, I walk into a room and I start talking and people get intimidated. They think that, you know, I know what I'm talking about, you know. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I reached the point in my life where I don't really feel like, I'm not, I stop working hard at trying to make people feel comfortable. If they can't accept me on my own terms, just, you know, they'll see shortly that it's cool. And if they don't, then there's nothing I, nothing I write or play or do is going to make them feel comfortable anyway. So I didn't have that problem when I was working with David and, and Eric Overmeyer and Ta-Nehisi and, and Taylor Branch. I, they were just cool. We were all there for the same purpose, and I really liked them all. Yeah. I could go on about that for, for a while, but I think let's, let's see what the, the next one, where the all next right. one takes us. Steven Pinker on the history of violence. Oh, this should be interesting. But before we get to the surprise clip, if you're trying to run a business in our age of hyperconnectivity, Nothing says amateur hour like a webinar that just doesn't work. GoToWebinar works. It lets you reach hundreds of people seamlessly and keep them engaged with live chat, interactive polls, and real-time feedback. And it makes it easy to reach your target audience and turn leads into customers. And it will not suddenly embarrass you in front of the whole world. Go visit GoToWebinar.com to start your free 30-day trial. That is GoToWebinar.com. And now, Back to the surprise clip and the rest of Think Again. Historic trends in violence can't be assessed by headlines. Headlines are about things that happen and they give you no indication whatsoever of how common a particular activity is. Because uh, you never see a reporter standing outside a, a school saying, uh, here I am in front of Maplewood High School which hasn't been shot up today. So uh, forget headlines. You have to, the only way to answer the question of what have, are the trends in violence is to look at data. With the exception of civil war, which after a roller coaster downward from the uh, end of World War II, has shown something of an uptick uh, because of the Syrian civil war. It's wiped out about 13 years of progress, taken us back to the level of about 2000 but it's still a fraction of the level that it was at in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, when you had not just uh, uh, eight or nine civil wars going on at a time, but uh, 25 or 30. Wars between countries tend to kill more people than civil wars. So even with the backsliding that we've seen in, uh, in the case of civil war, in the case of the most destructive form of wars, the world has still um, not seen a return to the, the bad old days of the 70s and 80s. I mean, if he's talking about war, he has the data that indicates war is decreasing in, in volume, but I don't know that it's decreasing in intensity because we have better weapons now. We kill better with more efficiency. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
I certainly agree with his numbers. I think he's, he sounds like he, he has looked into this enough to know what he's talking about, but. Yeah, and it's not just war. It's, yeah, it's like murder, domestic <coughs> violence, all, basically all human on human violence overall apparently has been declining since the Middle Ages, is what I recall. Well, that's good to hear. I mean, uh, you know, I'm sure the UPS guy who drops the packages at my house is happy to know I'm not going to, you know, <laughs> chop his head off with my kitchen knife, you know. Yeah. But um, the reporting that. of violence, yeah, yeah. In, at least in America, in some cities, it's just absolutely absurd. So it's, a, it's reached the point where, look, when I was a kid, and I had to go to school on the bus. You know, by the time I was in the, I guess it was the sixth grade or seventh grade, mm. my mother just, you know, she just put me, gave, I got a bus pass and I traveled on public transportation and that was it. Nowadays, you talk to parents in New York, they're scared to send their kids on, on public transportation until they're well into their teens and some never. And in rural areas, in the suburbs, these kids get a ride to school when they live two blocks away because the parents are afraid the kids are gonna walk to school and a black van's gonna pull up and yank the kid into the back of the van and drive him away, you're never gonna see him again. Because we hear these horror one stories. in a million horror stories yeah. about, I mean, this America's most wanted, these new Shafir mm -hmm. is just a monster motivator. And fear sells many a car, many a soda pop, many a tennis shoe, and harnesses many a vote. Many a, yeah, Donald Trump for president. Oh, well, yeah. you know, I mean. <laughs> I just find it deplorable that one guy could just attack one group of people, Mexican-Americans and immigrants from Latin America, and attack them so savagely and just get away with it, and, that, and people are so silent in the face of it. And, you know, I just don't understand it. I, I really don't. It's just one, it's, it's one of the most shameful blots of, of truth about our time. It seems to me that no major leader speaks up and puts a hit, puts a face on the opposition to Donald Trump and, and the people who support him. Because I, the people who support him, I'm sure many of them are very good people, but they've been misguided and misinformed. If they want to stay misinformed, that's their business. But I think in a free society, there is a responsibility not to yell crowd, you know, fire in a crowded theater. That's from Oliver Wendell Holmes, Supreme Court Justice. Mm -hmm. And by targeting Mexican-Americans as the quote-unquote immigrant problem is, in my view, creating an incendiary situation. Only violence is going to follow. Yeah, I mean, so maybe it would be interesting to see the data on fear, on, the, on whether fear is increasing in human, you know, whether, what the fluctuations have been throughout history, how the media has affected that. I mean, there's no question that the level of fear in, in American society is, is dictated by the corporate structure selling, for example, selling gigantic vehicles, these, these gas-guzzling SUVs that are supposed to protect you and keep you safe, and they have four-wheel drive so you can get around in the snow. And I mean, how many <laughs> days a year does it really snow when you really need, like, four-wheel drive? I mean, in the Northeast, maybe two or three days where you, you, know, you, where you can't get out. Most of the times the roads are salted, yeah. in the most, unless it's a really poor community or, you know, Queens. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, and advertising is getting more and more pervasive and pernicious. Like all we do is be on Google and Facebook, which is essentially their only product is our data, which they sell to advertisers to target us increasingly with fear-based marketing. <laughs> well, know? that's true. I mean, I'm not a big, <clears throat> I tell young artists and young writers and young musicians to be careful about how they use the internet. 
because if you want original ideas, then you need to still walk the earth. If you're sitting at home Skyping with someone in Uganda, you're sitting at home Skyping at someone <laughs> in Uganda. You'd be better off getting a second job, saving some money, and just going to Uganda for a lot of reasons, not yeah. the least of which just the journey itself gets you moving and, and allows you to see the world. I always felt it was really honor ironic that I would see more and experience more in the world when I was a musician than when I was a working journalist. Mm. When I was a working journalist, I had to go into the newsroom. Right. I get 30 or 40, you know, press release would come. I'd have to, you know, have to cover this. There's a two-book convention in town. Go cover it and so forth. But when you're a musician, you're playing a wedding gig, you know, you're driving to the Hamptons and the, the people are dancing and someone says, play something slow. And you, you say, I'm playing feelings, for God's sake. I can't get any slower than that. But there's a certain humanity and contact with humanity that inspires the creative process, I think, when you're out and about in the world. So let's take it to the third and final video, shall we? All right. All right. Uh, this is A.O. Scott, the critic, talking about virtual reality and cinema. So this should be fun. The question is kind of how virtual reality will interact with or supplant um, or challenge the theatrical experience, you know, because um, that has proven very durable. The end of movie going is something that's been predicted um, since the, the, the first television set rolled off the assembly line pretty much um, and has accelerated in recent years. This idea, well, people are just going to stop going to movie. There's going to be something at home that's going to be so great. Um, maybe it'll be goggles, you know, or maybe it'll be a big TV um, that no one's ever going to leave the house and go to the movies again. And yet people do. Um, and I think people still will. And, and if some enterprising producers or filmmakers or technology companies can figure out how to integrate the VR experience into that, that, that could be really um, interesting. A.L. Scott is a, he's one of the dean of film critics in this country. He knows mm -hmm. a lot, you know, he knows what he's talking about. I would only add that, that it doesn't matter how the story comes to the viewer. If the content isn't good, it doesn't matter how much virtual reality, how many people are jumping through buildings and flying <laughs> like Superman. If the content is not strong, it will not last. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's always a market for crappy content, too. I mean, it doesn't last, as you say, but it, it might sell, you know. I think Batman v Superman sold quite a few tickets in its uh, opening weekend. <laughs> I don't know if it our did. grandchildren was there. Yeah, well, I, you know, <laughs> the, yeah, I, it sold quite a few tickets, but I, and I haven't seen it, but I did see Eye in the Sky, and I thought that was magnificently done. Mm -hmm. I mean, I actually I saw a screening of that, so I agree. Yeah, that was I now that's writing, man. I mean, Batman and Superman is typing. <laughs> Eye in the Sky is writing. I mean, I haven't yeah. seen Batman and Superman, but I can tell you that it, it's not as good as Eye in the Sky. Not if you're a writer. Sure. I mean, something interesting that he said the present reality at any moment in terms of our relationship with technology mm. is always different from our dystopian visions of where we're headed. You know what I mean? Like at any any given moment you think like, oh, the tech is coming, the VR is coming, we're all gonna be sitting, you know, not mindless zombies, blah, blah, blah. Like, all right, now people are walking around looking at their cell phones, fine. Is everyone a mindless zombie? I don't think so. No, I'm not worried about the technology. Yeah. I'm worried about the content of the story. Mm. I think the focus really as, as educators and as thinkers is to keep our young people's minds on how to create content that's original and to set things up for them so that they can do original work. Because 
the, the delivery form will always be a little different. Right. I think it's absurd to think that just because someone's staring at a cell phone that he or she is a zombie. I mean, that has nothing to do with reality. I mean, these people do get the information however they can get it. Right. If you're smart, you'll figure out a way to get it to them in through the medium. And if you have a good story, the medium itself will adapt to what you have. Now, because we live in a, an age where you know, people want instant entertainment, you know, the five-second story yeah. is becoming more, more potent and more important than the 48-minute story. Right, and which that, is that's, fine. You know, I mean, I, you know, I'm an old-fashioned novel lover, so I would be sad to see the long-form stories disappear. I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, they've been predicting the end of, they, they predicted the doom, the <laughs> end of the world for books. When the electronic book came out, you know, Kindle and yeah. all that, people still read books. I'm traveling all over the country publicizing my book about James Brown, and I can tell you that people still read books and they still buy books. People can also make conscious choices. Like I'm starting to buy, you know, I had gotten in the habit of kind of automatically buying from Amazon. Mm -hmm. I'm now buying more from like in, from independent bookstores because I want to support them because I think they're a good thing for communities. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, that's the thing that isn't captured in that like monolithic vision of the future that everyone always has, like that people can make decisions, they can react against things, they can decide to do something that isn't just the newest thing. Well, um, there's a guy who wrote a book called We Are Not a Gadget. His name was Jared. Yeah, Jaron Lanier. Jaron Lanier. I thought that was a brilliant book. Yeah, me too. And I think he's a brilliant guy. He's also a musician. He's, he's extremely, he is a soothsayer, man. I really enjoyed that book. He writes yeah. about how MIDI changed music. Yeah, MIDI changed music and how basically all music sounds the same now because everyone's using the same recorders, the same drums, the same, you know, the same samplers and so forth, it, recording with digitally, so they're all, the digital sound sounds just as, sounds the same if it's recorded in this room in, in lower Manhattan as it would if it was recorded in Manhattan, Kansas. It's digital information. Right. It has the same crispness and the same brightness and thus the same flatness and lack of individuality mm. that all digitally recorded music has, if you, want to, if you want to know the truth. So what he postulates in that book is a little bit different than what A.O. Scott is talking about here. Right. He's saying that in the future, no one's going to pay for it, want to pay for any creative idea because it's all going to be free. Yep. Now that, that, kind of, that makes my socks roll down <laughs> to my ankle bones, you know, to hear him talk about it because he has, you know, he offers some pretty clear hypotheses and some clear examples as to why that is already happening. But I still think that people want to get up and move around and find and discover things. Right. And the, the act of discovery is still more fulfilling and more fruitful when you get up from your chair and go to the library or go to the bookstore or go to the record store and discover something while standing on your own two feet. Yeah, and human beings, like, have, we have the critical capacity. Like, we are not passive sheep and victims of Facebook. We right. can decide to go to a concert. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I mean, the question is, how do artists get paid? Mm -hmm. That's really the, the, yep. the question that is beneath both what A.O. Scott is saying here and what Jerron Lanier is saying in his book. How do you and I, as purveyors of the written, written word and purveyors of thought, get right. paid in the future? And is that model sufficient to support enough diversity of creativity or are like 
three people able to get paid while well if you want to succeed in business you have to you have to listen to a podcast like big think Doc. <laughs> i mean because you have to know what you have to know what people are thinking you have to know what's going on you have to be able to come up with ideas and you can't come up with ideas living in a vacuum if you go into work every day and you you work till one and you have lunch you go back to work mm -hmm. and you're behind a computer all day you you're going to have to get your ideas from somewhere else <laughs> I mean, because they're not going to just suddenly pop into your brain. Well, thanks for that shout out to uh, Big Think, <laughs> James McBride. It has been a lot of fun talking to you, and everyone out there should know that your book is called Kill Him and Leave Searching for James Brown and the American Soul. Thanks so much for being on the show. Delighted. Thank you for having me. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. Thank you so much for joining us. We've got a bunch of really exciting episodes coming up, which I'll tell you about in a minute. But before that, I hope you can join us on May 21st, if you're in or anywhere near New York, for a live show with Tony Award-winning playwright and actress Sarah Jones. It's part of NYC PodFest, and it's going to be at the Cake Shop in the Lower East Side here in New York City, 5 p.m. on May 21st. So I hope you can join us for that live show. Next week, I'm speaking with comedian and talk show host Chris Gethard. It's an amazing show, and I hope to see you here. 